I'm Sarah Earle, and this is School Talk. In this episode, we're looking ahead to the new year. First up, a conversation about the 2021 legislative session, which promises to be anything but dull, at least for people who get a thrill out of LSRs, committee meetings, and things like that. Christina Pretorius, Region Hire's Director of Policy, is one of those people. She's here today to discuss what's in store for education this year at the State House. Thanks for joining me, Christina. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. So first off, uh, you've been kind of nerding out on education policy for a while now. What's the draw? Well, I've, um, I've grown up in New Hampshire. I went to New Hampshire public schools and I went to UNH Durham for my undergrad and my graduate degree. So I'm a product of public schools here in New Hampshire. And I've also really come to recognize the importance that public education plays in attracting and retaining families in our state and in really being the great equalizer for all children. I strongly believe that each and every child in New Hampshire should have the opportunity for an amazing public education, a world-class public education. And so that's what I've really committed my career to, is to ensuring that all of New Hampshire's children have that opportunity. So as those of us who receive your um, lengthy, impassioned texts know, there are some pretty big issues on the upcoming legislative agenda. Can you kind of walk us through the highlights? Yeah, it will be an interesting session for sure. Um, First, we still aren't clear on what the session will actually look like. Will they meet in person? Will there be a hybrid model? Will it be fully remote? Nobody seems to know for sure at this point. Um, We do know that the House will meet in person on January 6th at UNH. And then there are the LSRs themselves, the legislative service requests. When I look at the ones that have been filed and have been published, one trend that really sticks out to me is the lack of bipartisanship. We are just not seeing the same cooperation between parties as we've seen in the past. I think you can ask anyone who's been around for a while who will tell you that one of the great things about the Statehouse and the people who are there is that, sure, people can disagree about policy or ideology, um, but there used to be this great spirit of cooperation and respect for the good of the state. Um, We'd see some common ground in the session, collaboration between parties, And when we look at the LSRs, we're not really seeing a lot of that this session yet. There is still time, so maybe we will see some more cross-party signing on of bills and and, and things like that. But I think it will be really interesting to see how the session progresses. And obviously, the pandemic limits lawmakers and really the public's ability to meet up with colleagues, chat in the halls, um, really build the goodwill that makes this entire process so great and so valuable. I really hope that this won't be a lasting effect um, and that we can see some of that bipartisanship, some of that goodwill return. So when we think about themes, we've seen a few major ones. I think that the big one will really be school funding. It's something um, that the legislature has been talking about for a while now. There was the commission to study school funding that wrapped up its work in the past couple of weeks. And we are seeing a lot of LSRs that are coming through from a number of state reps and state senators around school funding, around funding and adequate education and in, in, in playing with that formula to try to get it right. So, so one of the bigger reasons that school funding will be a really urgent issue is that 
there are projected to be a lot of cuts, automatic cuts, not anything that lawmakers would do. There's the fiscal capacity disparity aid that expires at the end of this school year. There's the enhanced free and reduced lunch aid that expires at the end of the school year. And then we're, we're finding that one of the unintended consequences of the department's effort to bring meals to all students in New Hampshire, which has been tremendous. They've delivered, I think it was over 6 million meals during this pandemic, which is an amazing feat. That's incredible. And should, it really is. And they, they should be applauded for it. Absolutely. But schools are finding that they're not getting the return of the applications for the free and reduced lunch programs, which is understandable. And that's to, whether it's because they're getting the meals anyway, or if it's because of the nature of the remote learning environment where they're having more trouble getting all of the forms in general, but those forms, that free and reduced lunch program form, is a big bucket in the school funding formula. So some schools are finding that about half of their eligible students are returning those forms. And so that will translate next year into impacts in their state funding because free and reduced lunch is a major part of the school funding formula. The state does provide additional resources to schools with kiddos who are eligible for free and reduced price lunch. And so all of those combined make for a really dire situation for a lot of schools, for a lot of communities, and for taxpayer, local taxpayers in general. So I think that this year, a lot of the focus will be on how do we provide our schools, our communities, and our taxpayers with the resources they need to meet student needs effectively in this new environment with all of these other programs. Okay, interesting. So can you tell me some of the specific recommendations that the School Funding Commission um, has started turning into LSRs at this point? Yeah, so the, the bills haven't been formally introduced yet, so I'm not sure at this point what specific things will make it in, but we have seen one by Representative Dave Luno, one LSR, which I would expect to be most of the commission's recommendations in into that bill. We've also seen a couple sponsored by Representative Rick Ladd from Haverhill, who is, he was also a member of the commission, and he had put in some thoughts into some of the ending reports And I would expect some of his thoughts and his take on that year-long work, um, what his interpretations were and his recommendations going forward in those LSRs. And we're also seeing a couple of proposals from other people who weren't on the commission. Al Baldessaro from Londonderry, Steve Smith, Barbara Shaw are, are also sponsoring LSRs relating to school funding and adequate education. Okay. And can you tell me more about what's reflected in any of those? Is it um, sort of a different point of view or or just additional um, recommendations that kind of go along with what the commission has recommended? Yeah. um, I'm looking at the titles. There's not a lot to glean from them, but if the past is any indication, I would expect there to be a couple that might change the funding formula that um, a couple of sessions ago, we saw some bills go through that cut stabilization grants, um, that cut specific funding sources. And so um, where we're going into this legislative session, um, where there are so many concerns about state revenues and, and that kind of thing, I would expect at least a few proposals to cut school funding, countering the commission's work, and so going from there. Yeah, speaking of state revenues, um, I know we've been talking about that a lot among ourselves. Uh, what's that looking like? 
So the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute has been doing some really great and interesting work um, around it following the state agency reports, following the um, state committees in, in tracking state revenues. And at the beginning of the pandemic, um, things were looking pretty bleak. There, the revenues were looking not great because of the pandemic, but the Fiscal Policy Institute very recently released a report that said that the state revenues are, they project them to be substantially better than suggested by some of the earlier indications. And so we're seeing these state revenue projections be substantially better, but um, we're also finding that individuals and families still aren't in a great place. The Fiscal Policy Institute's work around food insecurity has shown that the levels of food insecurity among New Hampshire families and, and individuals has remained pretty elevated for longer than national. It's not recovering at the same rate. And so the people in New Hampshire who are food insecure have remained there for longer. So, of course, as we know, um, the legislature this year looks a lot different from last year. It's flipped um, to Republican control. Um, so I wondered if you might tell us about, you know, what that might mean in terms of things that are coming down the pipeline. Yeah, the, the GOP has been really clear that they have two really big priorities. One of them is cutting business taxes. And the other one are vouchers, school choice programs. And so the business taxes obviously have implications for the education trust fund and the amount of money available for adequacy payments and, and things like that. And they've also been really clear about their push for voucher programs. They're calling them education freedom accounts. They have been really prominent in previous sessions in 2017, 2018, there was SB 193 for those of us who follow this stuff really closely. <laughs> so one of the major pieces that reaching hires previous analyses have found with voucher programs has been the impact on local taxpayers because you're providing that incentive for children to leave their local neighborhood public schools. And if students are leaving and you're providing that incentive, it does not reduce the fixed cost of the school. And so that money has to be made up somewhere and that money will be made up through local property taxes. And so we have found with, with previous programs that even a participation rate of two to 3% costs local taxpayers millions of dollars per year while promoting severe inequities in, in the system. Okay, so vouchers were defeated in like 2018, right? Yes. What might make this year different? Um, the the party has been really clear this year that it's one of their bigger priorities. They have told lawmakers in there to expect these bills to go through pretty quickly. And they have the majority in both chambers and at the governor's office. We can all but expect it to go through. Um, it was defeated in 2018. There were a number of Republican members who recognized the cost to local taxpayers. And they were very open and said, I can't support this bill because it hurts my community that I represent. But we're not seeing that same argument this year. There seems to be much more of a commitment to the ideology of voucher programs and privatization, school privatization more generally. And we'll have to see how it plays out, I think. So where does uh, Learn Everywhere fit into this shift toward privatization? I guess the first Learn Everywhere program was approved by the Board of Education last week. Yeah, that, 
That's right. They approved the first Learn Everywhere program for the New Hampshire Academy of Science. And uh, legislatively, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, much there. Um, it's already been an approved program. Um, the rules around that have already taken effect. You might be asking, like, how does that fit? A program where students can get credit for things that they do outside of the classroom. But the commissioner um, at a school choice event in Dublin a couple of years ago was very clear that the purpose of the program is to cut programs and courses at local public schools. So this would be outsourcing public schools to companies, nonprofits, and, and, and that kind of thing. So it's a really interesting part of the privatization effort and one that we haven't seen the effects of yet. Well, it sounds like you will have a lot to keep track of in the coming months. Um, and sure. I know you're going to be um, adding a lot of these great tidbits to our newsletter. So um, listeners, if you want to stay in the loop, make sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website. And thanks so much for joining me, Christina. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's great to be here. After the break, a story about New Hampshire's 2021 Teacher of the Year, who has spent the past decade creating a support network for the families in her school community. As the school day gets underway on the Friday before Thanksgiving at Ledge Street School in Nashua, EL teacher Danielle Booten is in the school parking lot in jeans, sneakers, and a tie-dye mask, staging the weekly farmer's market. She and her team of fellow teachers and volunteers lug grocery bags crammed with potatoes, onions, and carrots from the backs of SUVs and arrange crates of milk, boxes of pancake mix, bags of fish sticks, and the rest of the week's bounty on long folding tables. On the other side of the parking lot, women in colorful skirts and a few men in jeans and sweatshirts form a line. Behind the tables, on the edge of a raised bed filled with the brown remnants of flowers, a teacher helps a mother and daughter troubleshoot a laptop. For many of these families, this weekly event has become a lifeline in a year of crisis and uncertainty. It's one piece of a community support system Booten and her EL team have knit together over the years. And it's one reason Booten recently earned the title of 2021 Teacher of the Year. People fall on hard times and sometimes you have no one to turn to. And sometimes if you're in a brand new country, you may not have a support network yet or you may not have the language. You may not know how it works. Teaching new Americans is a calling for Booten. Her first visit to an EL classroom at Beach Street School in Manchester as part of her training at UNH Manchester confirmed it. It was like literally love at first sight. I knew like after like two minutes in the room, I was like, this is where I belong. This is exactly what I was meant to do. Putin started teaching at Ledge Street School 11 years ago as a long-term sub and never left. One of 12 elementary schools in Nashua, Ledge Street School serves students from a wide range of racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. More than 70% of the student body qualify for free and reduced-price lunch, the second highest rate in the state. Right away, Booten began looking for ways to meet her students' needs. Yeah, so I think for me, when I first came to Ledge Street, I just noticed that there was a lot of, you know, kind of small initiatives going in different ways, but there wasn't necessarily like a common goal, if you will, in terms of the work that was being done. And then I also saw areas where I felt like, okay, I see a problem. I think that I can help to kind of create a solution. Um, So like very early on, we found that like homework was a big issue, that kids were constantly being kept in for recess or, you know, they were feeling when they got into class that they had no idea what was going on because they couldn't keep up with the homework. And a lot of the parents didn't have the English skills 
to be able to help them. And a lot of times the older siblings weren't always available. Um, and so probably within my first or second year at Ledge, we kind of started a homework club. As they help students with their academics, Booten, along with Maria Berry, the school's family engagement coordinator, began noticing that problems in the classroom had deeper roots. We just kept hearing the same, you know, we would, there would be a discipline issue at school or someone would be having a hard time with a friend or there would be some reason why Maria had to make a call home for something. And then it would, Maria would be like, oh, can you stop in for a minute? And it would just be this issue that was so much larger than, you know, the disagreement on the playground. It went back to basic needs that, you know, we didn't have clothing, we didn't have food, and we thought we were going to lose our house tomorrow. I mean, I couldn't tell you the number of times that I had kids tell me like, oh, I couldn't come to school yesterday because like I didn't have the sneakers. My brother needed them for gym class. Like, That honestly happened to me like three or four times in my early years of teaching. And so a clothes closet was born, followed by a food pantry. Booten, Barry, and later fellow teacher Kayla Bassett did everything themselves for a while, conducting clothing drives, spending long hours washing and sorting donations and storing them in Bassett's basement, standing outside Market Basket to collect food donations. Barry, who I met as she was zigzagging through the parking lot in a crocheted hat and leggings, chatting in Spanish with families navigating the tables of food, remembers the days before everything ran so smoothly. I remember, you know, just approaching my neighbors, like, okay, clothing drive time. And then we'd set tables out in our cafeteria at conference time and have families just take what they needed. Or we had like winter coats were donated. And so each kid went up onto the stage and picked out a coat and mittens. And um, and it was just, it was very, it was haphazard and we're like storage. I mean, my, my office would be full. You're just clothes <laughs> everywhere. And, um, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was out of control. Eventually, the team connected with a nonprofit called Katie's Closet, which built them a clothing closet in one of the classrooms and kept it stocked with donations. So there's a lot less laundry in Kayla's and mine's life, and there's a lot <laughs> less going through bags. Over time, they made connections with other nonprofits, such as N68 Hours of Hunger, the New Hampshire Food Bank, the United Way, and the local soup kitchen. Of course, there were obstacles along the way, too including finding funds, time, and support for the programs. We had an administrator who wanted nothing to do with any of this. That's changed. The current administrator, Chase Miller, recently sang Booten's praises at a state board of ed meeting. She's progressive, she's innovative, she's everything that needs to happen in a school like ours, he said. The impact of Booten's work has been profound and far-reaching. You know, I mean, attendance is a big one that comes to mind. I definitely see a correlation between the clothing closet and, like, the improvement in attendance. I mean, when a student's able to come in and feel like they look like everyone else or their clothes are clean or they're wearing, you know, those silly sequin shirts that they can brush up and down just like everyone else has. <laughs> those small things matter, and they're also a window into the bigger things. Sometimes the students that come to us They've had atypical experiences. I mean, they've had significant trauma histories. They haven't had an easy eight, nine, 10 years on this planet. And so they they carry all of that with them. And so sometimes I think my own learning curve has been, you know, in the beginning, like, why is that kid acting like that? Like, why are they misbehaving so much? Whereas now I approach it in a completely different way. And it's through so much of this kind of community work that we've done that I've kind of gotten a much better insight into, you know, what our families have experienced and where they're coming from. And, you know, maybe that behavioral outburst that happens every single day at the same time, you know, a lot of times there's a lot more going on under the surface. And so 
sometimes by having clothing and food to offer, we're able to start having um, much deeper and more meaningful conversations. And once those bonds are made, they stick, says Bassett, an EL teacher who's been working at Ledge Street and with Booten's program for about eight years. One of the effects that we can see right now is we have high schoolers coming back to help us either in homework club or with our summer school who are here in elementary school. Booten and her team have also set a cycle of giving in motion or perhaps lent their muscle to a cycle that was already there. A lot of our families, you know, they're proud and they want to be a part of the community. So we'll always tell families, you know, oh, when your kids outgrow their clothes, if you don't have anyone to give it to, you know, feel free to give us a call, feel free to drop it off. And so we have a lot of families that will, they may take clothes from the closet, but they'll also donate right back to us. We do see like some families, once their situation changes, they then help others. Yeah, they needed help for a time. We all go through ups and downs in life. And so like when they were you know, maybe in a down, someone helped them and now they're up and they can help the next person. It hasn't been an easy year for Ledge Street families. I mean, it's it's tenfold. It's, you know, families that have never needed before are in need now. Uh, a lot of our families are in the restaurant business. A lot of our families are in housekeeping, in the cleaning industry. Um, and a lot of those industries are the ones that have been hit, you know, the hardest. And so um, a lot of times when your skills in English might be limited, your job prospects can also be limited. And so, it's hard for them to just go out and find something else. When the pandemic hit last year, Ledge Street quickly mobilized, turning the food pantry into a weekly farmer's market brimming with fresh produce, dairy, and meat, along with non-perishables and bread. They're now providing food to about 150 families a week, estimated Booten's father, Mike Booten, who volunteers at the weekly farmer's market. If there's a bright side to the crisis, it's the way it's strengthened Booten's team. And I feel like through the pandemic, a lot of our efforts have really kind of pulled together um, and we've, we've been able to almost kind of tighten the network. And I feel like I'm more aware now of what's happening in the community. And I feel like now if I, if a problem comes to me, instead of like not knowing who to reach out to, I feel like now it's like I have three or four different people that I know that I can make a phone call to and that, you know, are able to help. And they were always there, but I think that's probably one of the, the shining, you know, lights through all of this is I feel like we've gotten to have firsthand experience of so much of the work that's already happening out there and then figuring out how we can kind of work with them. Thanks again to Christina Pretorius, Danielle Booten, and her team for joining me today. School Talk is produced by our intern, Henry Lavoie. To stay up to date on education news, sign up for our newsletter at reachinghighernh.org and follow School Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next month.